Have you dreamed of bigger things for your life? Then you are in the right place. Each week, you will be given tips on how to change your inner dialogue, conquer your goals, and ways to step into a higher version of yourself. I'm your host, Lauren Kubat. I'm a motivational speaker who hosts personal development events. I'm a sought-after fitness instructor, a wife, and a mom of two young boys. I'm obsessed with all things personal development, and I believe anyone can achieve the life they want. Let the Become Your Vision podcast be the inspiration you need to step into greater things. Now let's go. I hope you are ready to be inspired today. You saw the title of this podcast and you're like, I need some inspiration in my life and this episode does not disappoint. Let me give you a little backstory on my interviewee today. Her name is Dana Matthewson. She is a native of San Diego, California. She is a two-time Paralympian, Tokyo 2020 Paralympic quarter finalist and a Wimbledon doubles champion. At the age of 10, Dana was diagnosed with transverse myelitis and at 13, she was introduced to wheelchair tennis. She's been a member of Team USA since 2009 and represented her country at several world championships as well as Rio 2016 and Tokyo 2020. Dana is the first American female to compete in all Grand Slam wheelchair divisions and the first and only one to win a Grand Slam title. Dana has a master's degree in clinical audiology and is currently working towards her doctoral degree. Whether it's through tennis or helping people with their hearing or through her keynote speeches, Dana is passionate about making an impact on others' lives. Today, she lives and trains full-time at the USTA National Campus. She plans on representing Team USA at Paris 2024 and beyond. You guys, Dana is amazing. My kids are banging on the door as I'm recording this intro. And... We're just going to ignore that part. Uh, She's just super, super inspiring. And then uh, I also want to mention that there is some internet connection lag time in uh, the audio. So if you hear like just a little bit of a lag or a pause, I apologize for that. We were just having some internet uh, issues, issues there, but you are going to, I think you're really going to love this episode. Okay. Enjoy. Depending on when you are listening to this, it is back to school time and I am just wondering how we got to this point. Our oldest son is starting kindergarten and that means I am full of emotions but also trying to figure out how I am going to adjust to this new schedule. I'm going to have to wake him up at the butt crack of dawn, make sure he is fed, make sure he has a proper nutrition and then also figuring out my nutrition but I know the cereal that I have created called Moosley will help make our lives so much easier. Moosley is a high fiber cereal that can be enjoyed cold or warm. I personally love it as cereal, cold cereal with vanilla almond milk. And I've also been adding it to my yogurt with some peanut butter. I love it in a smoothie. I love to bake with it. And best of all, my kids enjoy it as well. If you're struggling to and trying to figure out what you're going to do to make your life easier, I highly suggest trying Moosley. It has so many nutritional things in it, such as oats and three types of seeds. You got chia, you got hemp, you got flax, you have cinnamon and almonds and coconut flakes, and it is 
so delicious and filling and so good for the whole family. If you are wondering about what this muesli thing is, all you have to do is head to www.mymuesli.com. That's www.mymuesli.com and I will leave it in the show notes. Hey guys, welcome back to the show. Dana, thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Yes. So before I hit record, we were talking about her um, training session from the intro. You see that she is an Olympian. Uh, Can you just go over like Paralympian? Yes. Paralympian. Yeah. Um, Can you go through like what your typical training schedule looks like? We'll start there. Yeah. So, I mean, um, tennis is my full-time job. So I go to work, um, five days a week, sometimes six, just like everybody else. Um, my day starts with going and getting treatment on my wrist right now. Cause I have a wrist injury. Then after that, I've spent a couple hours on court. Then I have a break for lunch and then I have, um, a gym session kind. And then I either go back on court or I have rehab or something like that. So it's a full day. Oh my gosh. So does your training uh, schedule always look the same or does it change like, um, at different seasons of the year? Um, I would say that the only time it really changes is when, um, it's what we call preseason, which is when technically our season ends when you would think that we normally have a break, but when the season ends, preseason starts, and that's when you actually like train harder than you would during the season. So it's like, we have time before the season starts to kind of really get in shape, work on things that you need to work on. So there's really no off season for tennis technically. Oh my gosh. But, it's yeah, my schedule is more or less the same every day. It's just that the things that I'm doing each day might rotate, but the schedule is the same, if that makes sense. Yeah. And then for the therapy on your wrist, is that the arm you use to hit the, the yeah. racket? <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah. I have a cyst in my wrist, which sounds like some sort of limerick or something, but yeah. <laughs> I've had a cyst for a little while. So, and it's like, it's in a spot where they can't pop it. So, um, it's basically like every day I go in for treatment on it. And then like, I tape my wrist sometimes to play. And then there's rehab, like strengthening the muscles around my wrist and things pretty much every day. Oh my gosh. It sounds, it sounds super intense. And I'm like, so curious (laughs) about like so many things. And we're going to, we're going to get into all of, um, that, but in the intro, I read that you are the first American female to complete in all Grand Slam wheelchair divisions and the first and only one to win a Grand Slam title. Congrats. Thank you. Oh my gosh. That's huge. So like, first, can you tell us if people aren't privy to what a Grand Slam is? Can you explain what it is? Sure. A grand slam in tennis and able-bodied or wheelchair is, um, one of the most premier events that you can compete in. So there's four of them during the year. There's the Australian open, the French open, which is also called Roland Garros. Then there's Wimbledon and then there's the U S open. So there's four of them. Um, and like I said, the able-bodied players that, you know, like Nadal, Federer, Serena, they all compete at those same events. Um, but the top eight, but now they're expanding our draws to sometimes 12 or 16, um, wheelchair players also compete at those events. So, um, I guess, like you said, I was the first 
female um, wheelchair tennis player from the United States to compete in all four of those. And then I just won a doubles title at Wimbledon. So yeah. Oh my gosh. I wish people can see the smile on your face. Like how <laughs> is it surreal? Like, what does it feel like? Yeah, totally. Um, well, I kind of mentioned it when I was like explaining the slams, but it's very hard for, for wheelchair players to get into the slams. Um, just up until this year, the only people that got to play them were the top seven in the world and then one wild card. So theoretically you could be nine in the world and never get to play a grand slam in wheelchair tennis, which is crazy. Like, cause nine in the world, you're still very good. Like you're super good. Um, cause we have hundreds of people on our tour the way that the able-bodied side does too. Um, so for a while it was one of those things, like it was just a dream to compete at the slams. So the fact that I can say that I've won one now is pretty crazy. And for us, um, I teamed up with a player named Yui Kamiji, who's from Japan, who has a lot of success in slam. She's currently the number two in the world and she's won countless slam titles. So I was really nervous and like, I just wanted to play a good match in the final because we were playing against a team that's pretty much unbeaten for slam after slam after slam. So for us to do that and to walk away with the trophy was really exciting. Oh my gosh. What do you do to celebrate your wins? Um, I mean, to be honest, like when we got off court and then I like went to the gym to cool down and stretch and change and shower and do press and media, it was already like really late. And all I honestly did that night was go and get food. And then I just (laughs) wanted to go and like call my friends and family. Like I didn't really go out or do anything that night, which seems really boring, but um, it was exhausting that day. So I kind of just wanted to chill out and just like hang out with my loved ones, which is what I did. Yeah. You didn't have like a celebratory, like dinner or anything yet. Not that night. Um, okay. but the USTA, like, so my team that I work with here didn't get to like, not all of them got to come with me to Wimbledon. So when I got back, they surprised me with like a huge thing, which was really cool. Oh my gosh. Um, so like everyone in player development at the United, the USTA United States Tennis Association, um, like kind of gathered and like they all said nice things and they ordered strawberries and cream, which is like a Wimbledon staple to celebrate. <laughs> and there was like a big banner congratulating me. So like that was all a surprise and it was really nice. So I, I did have like a celebration when I got back home. Yeah. So then they give you a medal. Do you get to keep these medals? Is it something well, that it's not a medal? So medals only get given out at the Olympics or the Paralympics. Um, gotcha. but at, at slams you get trophies and yeah, I have a trophy. Okay. And I have to ask this, like, do they give you like a special like cash prize for winning? Of course. Yeah. So tennis, okay. um, Tennis is a sport that I guess is a little different from like basketball or things like that. And that every time we play a tournament, you compete for prize money. So, okay. So you you walked away with some prize money. Yeah. Oh, that's exciting. Um, And then you mentioned Serena Williams. She's like, you know, everybody knows Serena. Uh Um, Have you ever met her? Uh, I've seen her a lot. I haven't actually officially met her. Um, Okay. A lot of times, like, I mean, we go by each other at slams with all the other top players. We share the same locker rooms and things like that. But I'm I'm not the type of player that will, like, go up and be like, oh, my God, can I get your picture? Because I like to think that we're there for the same purpose. She's working. I'm working. Yeah. Like, we're the same. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, are, are you, you ever, know, like, starstruck by anybody that you yeah, see there? Yeah, of course. A little bit. Like, you go and you see Roger Federer just, like, sitting and eating lunch next to you. Like, of course, you feel starstruck. But then I think... <laughs> um, 
in a way you can kind of turn it back on yourself and be like, wow, I am actually eating next to this person. Like I've earned the right to be yeah. in the same room with them. And um, I think that's more exciting than anything to know that like my work has paid off in that sense. But of course you get starstruck. Like all those people yeah. are right there with you. It's very cool. Oh my gosh. That's so amazing. Um, so let's talk about at 10, you were diagnosed with transverse myelitis. Can you, um, explain, first of all, explain what that is. Um, it's a rare autoimmune disease that attacks your spinal cord. It can happen to anyone at any age. Um, and it just comes on suddenly for me, it happened within a span of like a couple hours when I was playing soccer. Um, yeah. So I went from being able-bodied to being very much not able-bodied in a matter of like, I want to say two hours. Um, but yeah, your, your immune system attacks your spine for really no rhyme or reason. It's really rare. I think, I don't know the current stats on it, but I think I read one time that it was like one in a million type of chance or five in a million. It's something like that. And so because of that, it's so rare, there's not a lot of research on it. So they still don't know why it happens. Mm -hmm. And like I said, it can happen anywhere along your spine. So I'm pretty lucky that it happened around like my belly button area, which is what they call T10 in terms of the levels of your spine. So everything from my waist down has been affected basically, but it could have happened in my neck. It could have happened like even lower in my spine. Um, so yeah, it's, it's kind of like a really weird lottery that I won. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's a really crazy thing. Like there was no family history of it in my family. I wasn't sick beforehand. No one hurt me. Like it, it literally just happened. So you're playing soccer, you're on the soccer field and you said, and like something was off, like, what did you experience? Um, a lot of pain. My back just started to hurt really badly. And then my legs felt really heavy. And then, um, they started to have pins and needles kind of like when your foot falls asleep. And then, like I said, within a matter of hours, I remember looking down at my foot, trying to move it and then nothing happened. It was just gone. Oh my gosh. So then your parents take you to like the doctor, are they freaking out or Uh, I mean, honestly, I don't remember a lot of what happened. I think your brain tends to like forget traumas just to Mm. kind of like help you out. Yeah. And I I was only 10. So, uh, that was a lot of years ago, unfortunately. How old are you now? I'm 31 now. 31. Okay. Um, I was going to guess in your twenties. Oh, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) You're welcome. Um, I'm like, oh, she won. So young. But I mean, 31 is young, but yeah, I'm like thinking like 24 or something. (laughs) (laughs) I'll take that. Um, No, my, both my parents are doctors. So I think they kind of put on their doctor hats and like they knew something was wrong. Of course, I'm sure they were panicking, but it was more like you kind of compartmentalized and they wanted to get me to the hospital and get me seen and help figure out what was wrong with me. Um, but yeah, like I said, I don't have a ton of memory of what happened that night. I remember looking down my foot and having nothing happen. I remember going to the hospital. Um, I remember them doing countless MRIs on me, but it's like little snippets that I remember from like Mm. that whole month that I was in the hospital. So you were in the hospital for a month while they're trying to figure out what was going on after a month. they They knew it was wrong, but they had to like, I mean, I had to be in the hospital for a month. Gotcha. Okay. So were the doctors at that time, like aware of what you had, or was it something, you know, how you like go into the doctor sometimes, or you hear these stories are like, we don't know what's wrong with her. Yeah. Did they know pretty um, instantly or? 
I don't think that it was like instant. I think that's why I had to have so many MRIs. Okay. I was in the ER for a long time, but um, the day that I went into the hospital, they did, they did figure out what I had. It was just okay. a really rare thing. And then I think also my dad worked at that hospital. So like for the doctors to have like one of their physicians, kids come in and have something like I did, it was a very like crazy type of thing. Um, yeah. but yeah, they, I think they were able to figure out what I had, but it was definitely the 60th time they'd seen it. It was probably like the first or second. Right. Yeah. What kind of doctors are your parents? Just curious. My dad's a pediatric cardiologist and my mom's a pediatrician. So like I could never fake sick when I was a kid. (laughs) (laughs) They're like, you're fine. You're going to school. (laughs) Yeah. They're like, oh, uh, like 99 isn't contagious for a fever. Go to school. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. Um, okay. So then when did you, when did they tell you, Hey, you, or did they tell you, you probably won't be able to walk again, or, you know, you're going to have to be in a wheelchair. Yeah. Um, that was obviously like something that I had to come to grips with. And again, I don't remember like Mm. day by day when they me and stuff, but I, I do remember being in denial for a lot of it. Like, I mean, I was 10. Yeah. So it's really hard to come to grips with the fact that like my life that I knew had radically changed in such like a physical way. Um, so I think, I think there was a conversation where doctors told me that I wasn't going to walk again and that I probably wouldn't feel my legs again and things like that. And I don't think that sunk in for a very long time. Mm. When do you think it finally sunk in? Um, Maybe by like my third week of being in the hospital Mm. Um, and then like starting rehab, like you have to relearn to sit on your own. Like you use your legs for a lot of things. Like you've been sitting down, you use your legs for like, if you're not sitting in a chair that supports you, um, cause you're using your core and all that to balance yourself. So I couldn't even sit up at first. I couldn't do a lot of things. So having to relearn all of those things again, kind of forced all of that to become very real for me. Yeah. How long were you in like physical therapy for? Oh, years, probably. Okay. Wow. How did your parents, and I don't know, have they like showed their cards or showed their emotions? Like I'm a mom of two boys and, you know, having a daughter that's, you know, completely able-bodied and healthy and, you know, and then all of a sudden you get this diagnosis, like, did they ever go through a hard time or let it on that, you know, you know, how they were feeling? Um, yeah, I mean, I can only imagine how they felt. Um, I don't have any kids, but I have a, I have like a dog. She's right next to me. And I can only imagine that if something like crazy like that happened to her, even a dog, I would be super upset. So I can only imagine how my parents felt. Yeah. Um, I think that it helped that they could understand what was going on because of their medical background. Whereas like the average parent, I think wouldn't necessarily understand what an autoimmune disease does or how that is affecting things. So maybe in terms of their understanding that would have helped with like the shock of it all. Mm. Um, but then maybe that would also make it more scary because they knew exactly what was happening to me. I'm, I'm not really sure. Yeah. Um, it's not something that I've explicitly talked about with them, but I know that that was traumatic for them. Um, yeah. my parents aren't together anymore. Um, I don't, I'm not saying it's because of that, Yeah. Um, but I think, I think that was really hard for my dad. Um, I think that he was in denial about it for a long time. Like he used to say that like, Oh, we'll go hiking or we'll do things like that. And then you're kind of like, well, we're not going to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it was very hard on my dad, especially having me be at like his place of work 
knowing that yeah. I was like where all the other sick kids that he works with, like that must have been really hard. Yeah. And then also being a parent, I'm sure you can relate to it, like being a parent and not being able to fix your kid. Yes. I can only imagine how that felt. Oh my gosh. Like, I'm just like getting emotional thinking about yeah. that. And like, <laughs> yeah, emotional too. Like I can only yeah. imagine like, you know, as a parent, you want to protect your kids. Like that's your job. Yeah. And you want to fix it to protect other people's kids and they, and they like fix other people's kids, but then they knew that there's nothing they could do to fix me. So I can yeah. imagine that was really tough. Yeah. Did you go through like any like depression or anxiety, you know, especially, I mean, you're a young girl, 10 yeah. years old, you're like on the brink of like puberty and like oh yeah. <laughs> friends are like in sports and like doing all these, you know, things. And you, you know, you, we we're going to talk about when you discovered, um, wheelchair tennis and stuff, but what was, you said, yes. So can you kind of go through that time of like what you were feeling emotionally and was there anything that you did that helped? Yeah. So that was, I mean, that was awful. I think anybody disabled or not, like when you're a girl in her preteens, you just want to look like everyone else. Like yeah. I remember back then it was, you know, like Hollister, Abercrombie and like, you wanted to, you know, have like the cute jeans and have the cute tops and do your hair the right way. And that was kind of the stuff that I was thinking about before. So every girl and guy wants to fit in, but then now you throw a wrench, like a wheelchair into that equation that sucks. Right. Yeah. Um, I automatically stick out when all you want to do at that age is fit in totally. and it was really hard. Um, I think I was lucky that I didn't have to change schools immediately. Like I was in the summer between fifth and sixth grade when that happened. And so like I was going into sixth grade with all the kids that knew me before. Um, I think that would have really been awful if I had to make new friends immediately after that happening. Um, so that part was at least fine. Like socially, I wasn't all of a sudden, like not an outcast or anything like that, but I didn't have to worry about friends at that right. point. And that helped a lot that they came to visit me and they still treated me the same because they had known me since I was like really little. Um, so that part was helpful. But yeah, I mean, I'm still self-conscious about the fact that like I look different from most other girls. You are. Oh, of course I am. I think the same way that you probably look in the mirror and want to look a certain way, yeah. I have the same feelings. Um, and because I was able-bodied, even though it was only for what is now a third of my life, like mm -hmm. that is what is normal to me in my brain. Right. I yeah. wasn't born with my disability. So I think there's always going to be that feeling of like, I remember what it's like to do certain things on my feet. I remember what it's like to be able to wear certain outfits that maybe I can't wear now because I don't think they look as good when I sit down as when you do standing up it, lots of little things. Like everyone has insecurities and Mine are definitely more focused on the fact that I'm in a wheelchair. Um, but again, it's not like the be all end all of things. Like because of my chair, I have great arms, you know, that, that other people are in the gym, like working for. So there's so true. like, I was, yeah, I, like, I was scrolling your Instagram. I'm like, damn her arms. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, there's, there's ebbs and flows, but at that time of my life, that was definitely hard for sure. Yeah. Do you it's feel hard now, but it was hard then. Yeah. Do you feel like it would, did your friends change or anything or did they start treating you differently or was there any like weirdness with that? Oh, I don't think so. Um, my friends, if anything, like really rallied behind me. Um, my family did too. Um, and I think that's a really important thing just 
to remember is that like, just because someone has a disability, it doesn't make them any different. You know, like they're still people. Yeah. And my, and my friends saw me that way. Um, and if anything, I think having the disability kind of like forced different personality traits of mine out, like it didn't change who I was, but I think it's made me more outgoing in terms of like being funnier or more talkative. Cause I feel I probably in my own mind, I feel I have to compensate for my disability when I meet people, excuse me. So like, I feel like I have to be kind of like the one cracking jokes or prettier or this or that, or that to combat what you're obviously looking at when you meet me, which is my chair, understandably. Um, so I think in terms of when I made new friends, I really didn't have any trouble. I I've always been able to make friends and fit in. I've never experienced bullying or anything like that, luckily. So it hasn't really affected me that way. Mm. What is okay? So, like, get I see that you have an engagement ring on, right? Are you married? I do. Woo, congrats. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, so, what was like the dating like? Did that change in any way? I mean, you, you were in a wheelchair at 10. Did you feel like self conscious? You mentioned being self conscious. Did you feel that way when it came to like boys? Sorry, I feel like I'm going to cough. You're fine. If you have to get water, go get water. <laughs> it's like an I itch in your throat. Like three weeks ago. Oh. I had COVID three weeks ago. And ever since then, it's made me like have this weird tickle in my throat. And every once in a while, it makes me have to cough. Oh, yeah. So I feel like I think it's gone. Um, boys. Yeah, of course, you get more self-conscious. I think that, again, going back to the whole like, being able-bodied and like that kind of being what my normal was, I kind of assumed like, well, no one is going to like me. Like I look different. My legs aren't like, you know, perfect, like that girl over there or things like that. But my first long-term boyfriend was able-bodied. The guy I'm engaged to now is able-bodied. I've dated people with disabilities, without disabilities. So it hasn't really been like a challenge dating. I think that the wheelchair actually leads out a lot of superficial people. So maybe I haven't dated like a thousand people because it's weeded people out, but in a way it's been like a blessing because I don't have to worry about people that are super superficial or things like that. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, totally. How did you meet uh, your fiance? Well, it's a great story. I'm so sorry. It's okay. Go get water if you need to, for real. It doesn't help it. It's really annoying. Oh, it's just annoying. It's just like these like weird like spells that like come and then they go for like hours at a time. Oh, that's annoying. It really, really sucks. Um, so I met my fiance when I moved here to Orlando. He lived in the same apartment building as me. Um, but I didn't know that until I was going down to my car one day to go to the USTA for a workout. And I opened up the trunk of my car and a frog was there. And I guess <laughs> to you how much I don't like frogs. Like I really, really do not like them. So this was like panic time for me. And um, yeah, I didn't know what to do. And it, your head races kind of like, okay, if I do this, then this could happen. If I do this, this could happen. And I'm thinking of all the ways that like, okay, if I try to get it, the frog could go into my car or it could like jump on me. Like I was thinking of all these (laughs) things and I'm just panicking and none of the options seem good. Right. So I remember, um, Dristen is his name. He was running by, I'd never met him, but I was desperate. Right. So I like yelled across (laughs) the parking lot and I was like, excuse me, can you help me? And like, I always joke that of course he saw the girl in the wheelchair and was like, okay, like she probably needs help with like putting (laughs) hair in the car or something. And he came over and 
I told him like, there's a frog in my car. Can you please get it out? And he was like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's such a funny phobia. I mean, oh my gosh, I think they're so gross. Like they're wet. They can be like here and then there. They are gross. I wouldn't want to touch them, but yeah. No, (laughs) and they're everywhere in Florida. And like, it was in my car, right? Like how the heck did that happen? Yeah. So he helped me get the frog off my car. And then um, I was so flustered that I didn't even introduce myself. I think I just said like, thank you so much. You're amazing. And I like got in the car and left. And then the next morning I went down to my car and there was like a note on the door that had like a little frog drawn on it and it basically like introduced himself. And then from then on, we like texted and then started dating, but yeah, he's great. Oh my gosh. That kind of gave me goosebumps. That's so sweet. I know, like, it's like the best story. Like I know I probably shouldn't say that about my own love story, but I feel like it's just the cutest thing. I can't but- believe it. Cause like days before I was like, you know, I've been single for a while now. Like I'm always on the tennis tour. I'm around the same people. Like how am I going to meet somebody um, and then the next day, that's when the frog was in my car and I met him. So, oh my gosh, that's so yeah. cool. <laughs> How long have you guys been dating or together? It hasn't actually been that long. Um, we've been together about two years now. Yeah. Oh my gosh. What does he feel like having a fiance that is a para Olympian? Like that's pretty badass. I feel like he thinks it's really cool. Um, yeah, I mean, he, he loves my arms. Like you said. so I guess he likes that I'm athletic um but no I mean he's like really proud of me just like my family and my friends are he's really supportive I think more than anything it's nice that he's supportive of my schedule like I have to be gone maybe two-thirds of the year just competing so as much as we're like very together in terms of the fact that we're engaged like we almost have a long distance relationship for certain months of the year and he's also, he's in medical school. So he's oh. off doing like his um, rotations right now. Like right now he's in Gainesville. And so we're living in different cities that see each other on weekends. Um, so I think because he's so busy and I'm so busy, it kind of works out. But I think more than anything, he's just super supportive and super understanding. And that's great. Yeah. Medical school. What is he going to like? You have a bunch of smart people around you. What is he going to school? I know. For? I feel like, <laughs> I feel like I'm the dumb one. Um, You're a Paralympian. You're not dumb. He's, <laughs> You're he's, very talented. <laughs> he's, um, he's going to school to be in, an internal medicine hospitalist. So he wants to be the hospital, be the doctor that goes in and like sees the people that are really sick in the hospital and kind of does the rounds and, and helps fix you. So. Oh my gosh. That's, he's that's so great. awesome. So cool. Talk about, okay. So you got introduced to wheelchair tennis when you were 13 was like tennis, something that you were intrigued by or how did that happen? (laughs) Okay. Cause you played soccer. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Soccer was always my sport of choice. I loved it. I grew up loving team sports. All of my best friends were then soccer players. And so that was just like my thing. Um, I, remember playing tennis like in the summertime because my mom would sign me and my brother up for tennis camps just to like get us out of the house but it was never anything where I was like playing tennis you know yeah and it was never anything that I was super excited about I remember thinking it was kind of boring actually Mm. so um yeah after I was injured or sick or whatever you want to call it my mom was looking into different like athletic opportunities for me because she I remember her saying, she was like, this is no excuse for you to be like a couch potato now. Like you're, you were an active kid before you're going to keep being an active kid. And I remember hearing her talk about these 
wheelchair sports or adaptive sports. Um, and I was like, that's going to be ridiculously boring. Like, how is that even going to be possible? I'd never met anyone with a disability that wasn't someone's grandparent, you know? So I was like, yeah. I couldn't picture what that sport would look like. And to me, it, I'd only ever heard of the special Olympics and that's not to knock special Olympics, but I, those are for people with mental disabilities. Mm. And so I'm in that trying to imagine, you know, I'm thinking old people that I'm thinking people with mental disabilities. I'm like, yeah. where do I fit in with that? That's not going to be something for me. And, um, and so I, I really had no interest in wheelchair sports or adaptive sports. I didn't want to do it. I didn't think it would be competitive. I didn't think that it would be like the sport that I knew. And my mom was super adamant, like, no, we are going to try this. This is what life is like now. I'm going to sign you up for all these different things. And she did. She signed me up for rugby. Um, so wheelchair rugby was the first sport I tried. Then I did wheelchair basketball. And then wheelchair tennis was the one that I tried next. And for every camp, I was like crying and screaming in the car, didn't want to go. And then once I got there, I mean, so many wheelchair athletes are so much more athletic than the athletes you see on your feet. It's insane what some of them can do. Yeah. Um, and I was blown away by it. And I immediately saw not just the athleticism, but I saw other people that were like me. And right. any facet of life, when you see people that are like you, you gravitate towards them. And I think at that time in my life, when I was so like different from everyone else, suddenly it was so nice to fit in, especially at that age, right? Where you want to fit in. Totally. So um, it was a really cool experience for me to kind of like find my independence again through sport, to meet people that were like me and make friends in a different kind of set um, or a different kind of avenue of my life, like outside of school and then be really athletic again was, was great. I think it really was just the way that I kind of found myself again after, after getting hurt. Yeah. When did you figure out like, or maybe your coaches were like, she's really, really good. <laughs> um, I think that they noticed like maybe talent in me. I wasn't, I obviously wasn't like really good from the get go, but you know, they can like spot things. Um, yeah when, when kids come to those camps and I guess they saw something in me. And I think some of the coaches spoke with my mom and they were saying like, well, we want to have her, you know, keep playing tennis. And they offered to give me a tennis chair. Cause there's different types of sporting wheelchairs, depending on what sport you play the same way that you have different shoes, depending on what sports you play on your feet. So interesting. Um, Cause I would never, you know, that's something I would never think about. Yeah, it's actually, it's a really, really huge thing. So like yeah. all of the wheelchairs that we use, including the ones that I use day to day are not the ones that you would see in a hospital or the ones you see in the airport. Like these are all bespoke or made to measure for each person. So I, I, and all the other athletes that you would see in the Paralympics or things like that, you go to an actual wheelchair manufacturer, they measure you. They like see how wide your hips are, how long your femurs are, how high do you want to sit off the ground? What kind of backrest do you want? So like all these chairs are made exactly to fit each person. So imagine if you were getting like custom tennis shoes or things right. like that. Um, so yeah, they, they offered to let me borrow a tennis chair, which as you can imagine with what I just explained, it didn't fit me at all, <laughs> but it was a start, right? <laughs> yeah. um, so they, they said that I could have a tennis chair if I agreed to play a couple tournaments a year and practice twice a week. And um, my mom was shocked that all of a sudden I was like, yeah, okay, I want to do it. And things just kind of steamrolled from there. I started playing tournaments and, um, and then I started winning some or having some success. And then started playing all through high school 
eventually got a scholarship to go to the University of Arizona for tennis and then um, started playing professionally on the tour around 2015 and then qualified for the Rio Paralympics and then started playing professionally after that. Oh my gosh, that is so exciting and so cool. Yeah. Yeah. So when you're when you, when you play, do you play with everybody now that you're in the Olympics, but like for the scholarship, did, were you playing with able bodies or were you? No, I played for, um, so there are various colleges across the United States that have wheelchair tennis teams. This, and there's wheelchair basketball teams that represent colleges as well. Um, that's one of the things that I think the average public doesn't know about. Yeah. Um, but yeah, those programs do exist at a lot of D1 schools. Like Alabama has a huge program. University of Wisconsin, Whitewater has a program. I think Auburn has program. So Arizona um, recruited me and I was really excited to play tennis for a D1 school, you know. Um, and yeah, that's why I went there. So I played on their wheelchair tennis team. Wow. So, so yeah. awesome. Okay. So then you're in college, you're playing, you're playing tennis. When do you like start training or have this idea like, Hey, I can possibly go into, you know, para Olympics. Um, I think it was when, let's see, I was in graduate school at that time at Arizona as well. What'd you go to school for? Audiology. So I have my bachelor's in speech and hearing science, and I have a master's now in audiology, and I'm getting my clinical doctorate. Now. Oh my gosh. So you're a smart cookie too. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm okay. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, I, I remember being in school then and then noticing that I was. I think I just like kind of had one of those things where I was like, I wonder if I could do it. I wonder if I could make, make a games. And you have to be, um, for the women's side, at least you have to be in the top 22, I believe to qualify for a games and that's top 22 in the world. And I think my ranking was like in the low thirties at the time. And I was like, I wonder if I could do it. And to my surprise, I remember bringing it up to my mom and, uh, she has usually been the, been a proponent of like, school is your job. That's the most important thing. So I was thinking she would be like, absolutely not. You're not going to like take a leave of absence from school to go compete as an athlete, you know, because I'd always done both, but she was really supportive. Um, I talked to a lot of my professors and they were super supportive. They were like, you know, the games come once every four years. It's a huge opportunity. We would love to have you do it. So I got a leave of absence from school and I competed full time on the tour um, got my ranking to, I think I ended up being like in the like 20 or something by the cutoff. So I qualified and then played my first games and then kind of didn't go back to school for quite some time. Oh my and, gosh. And, um, professionally from then. So how do you, okay. How long did you have to train for the games? Um, to, I to think qualify, I, I guess I, I took a little, well, how do I explain it? Tennis basically goes on an annual rolling basis. So you really have one year to qualify for a games. So basically how it works, I'm trying to think of a good way to explain whatever you do in one calendar year gets erased 
the next calendar year. So everyone's rankings are basically on like a year to year basis. Okay. So you might've had an amazing year last year, but it doesn't mean that whatever ranking you earn last year will stay for the rest of your life. Like you have to defend your points from the year before. Otherwise they drop off. Cause basically like, say I'm at a tournament on December 1st and okay. I get to the finals the next year's December 1st comes around and those points automatically go away. If I play that same tournament and I get to the finals, then I have defended my points, but, and they just stay with me instead of dropping off. Does that make sense? Yes. I, I, it is so, making yeah, that's sense. Why, like, that's why you have to play a bunch of tournaments all the time because they're constantly falling off. So that's why like, I can't just have an amazing year, like two years ago, and then just like stay in the top rankings for the rest of my life. Like it constantly is recycling and going. And that's why you see like Serena ranked number one is like such an amazing feat because she's done it for so many years. Whereas a lot of times people will fluctuate in the rankings and maybe you'll be eight one month and then six months from then you'll be ranked in the top teens because you've dropped some points or you haven't defended or you haven't like had a good run at a bunch of tournaments. So tennis is a very, it can be very stressful. Yeah. I was just going to say like, how, how did you handle the stress? Um, I think at that point I really was playing with house money because I hadn't really competed on the tour that much before. So I wasn't defending anything, so to speak. So when I was going to tournaments, I was only gaining points to add to my ranking. So the stress really wasn't there in terms of like maintaining a ranking or things like that, which I find much more stressful now than I did then. It was really just about getting myself to a qualification spot, which I luckily wasn't that far from at the time. I think that now it's a lot more stressful to me now that I'm at a ranking point where I can play in grand slams and things like that. You really, once you have a taste of playing in those huge tournaments, you don't want to lose that opportunity. And that means that I then have to play consistently well year after year after year to maintain a higher ranking. And I think that stresses me out more than anything, but it also, I mean, that's what keeps you appreciative of the opportunities you have because you have to constantly work to have them. And, um, yeah, I think tennis is good that way. It keeps you humble. (laughs) Yeah. Does it make it hard to like celebrate your wins? Are you constantly focused on like the next game and keeping your ranking? Um, I think it doesn't make it hard to celebrate the wins. I think there, you could definitely look at it that way. Like, Oh, I won this tournament. So that means I have to win it next year. You right. know what I mean? Yeah. Um, you could look at it that way, but no, I think it's really exciting because tennis is so variable that you can have a great day one day and the next day have a terrible match through no fault of your own. Like tennis is a cool sport that way. Cause you don't have anyone else on your team to pick you up. If you're not having a good day, you're out there competing by yourself. Um, So I think that whenever you have, say, a good draw and you can get deep into a tournament and win a lot of matches and get a lot of points and consequently money, that's a great thing to be celebrated because it it doesn't always happen that way. Yeah, that's huge. What is the being at the Paralympics, what is that experience like, like the lead up? Is there anything special that you have to do? And like, what is it like when you're actually there? Oh, it's amazing. I think, um, 
I guess for people listening that don't know, like there is the Olympics and then there's also the Paralympics, which is great that you're referencing because there is a difference between the two. I think as much as we both represent Team USA and we're both competing for the same gold medals and and all those things, um, I think Paralympians like to have a separate identity instead of being called Olympians, which I think is important to recognize. Mm. Um, But yeah, it's amazing. I think what's really cool is that the Paralympics happen two weeks after the Olympics. Okay. So when everyone is watching the Olympics, I get to kind of watch it like, Oh, that's the venue that I'm going to be at. Oh, those are the outfits that we're going to get to have. Do you know what I mean? So it's almost like we kind of joke that the Olympics is a test run for the Paralympics. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah. Um, we're always at the same venues that the Olympics are at. That's my dog. (laughs) Oh, <laughs> so cute. <laughs> um, we're at the same venues that the Olympics are at. We have the same uniforms. Um, so I think when I first saw that before my first games, I got super excited. And then once I finally got there, the Rio games in 2016 were my first games. And I think one of the coolest parts was what they call team processing, which is where you go to, for me, it was a place in Texas where all of Team USA goes in. Um, gets all of their clothes. So you get all your Nike gear that has USA written on it. Olo, who sponsors Team USA, gives you all your clothes. Oh, you're cutting off. All of that was really like overwhelmingly cool. Um, so I think that was kind of. <laughs> um, all of, all of that was really fun. I think going into opening ceremonies was probably the coolest memory that I have. Um, I remember that. So, you, you know, you have like the parade of nations where it's like, you know, Canada, blah, yeah. blah, blah, and it's like what feels like a hundred hours. And sometimes it can be really boring to watch on TV. Yeah. Um, I remember that we were waiting to like go into the tunnel and being USA, you're one of the last teams. So we're waiting and waiting and waiting. But I remember that on our way in, I just heard like the whole stadium, like chanting USA, USA. And uh, like the stadium was packed. And I was like, I didn't know what it would be like, like the Olympics versus Paralympics are a lot of people going to come. Like, what is that like? Cause in America, people don't know about the Paralympics. Mm. So I wasn't expecting like a huge crowd turnout, but this stadium was full. And, um, yeah, so I got goosebumps. Like they were screaming, chanting for USA. And then we go in and you're parading around and there's all the the cameras and things like that. And they teach you before you go in, like, okay, when you see USA flags, when you see cameras, like wave at them, smile. And so I'm doing that. And I remember we got to our spot, um, in the parade where like team USA goes and sits and then watches the show. And I saw one flag like going insane and I, I waved at it and like, it kept like going like nuts and like <laughs> I looked at it again and I looked closer and it was actually my family. And so like the fact that I could see them in this crowd that had like tens of thousands of people in it yeah, was like so cool that they happened to be like seated behind, like where I would be seated and like to see them there, it was makes me like emotional now, but it was really cool. I get goosebumps everywhere. Like that is such a, it had to be like such a special (laughs) moment. Like I made it here and then my loved ones are here to see this. Yeah. It felt like, wow, I've really made it. This is huge. I'm on like the world stage, like the pinnacle of, of my sport. Um, Cause outside of playing a grand slam, the Paralympics is it right? Like that's, that's the biggest thing you can compete at. So I think that's when I knew that I had really, 
made it. And also yeah. like with tennis being such a traveling sport, like my family doesn't really see me compete very often, especially not in person. Mm-hmm. So to have them there was, was really cool. Oh my gosh. So cool. Would you say Rio, what was your favorite Rio or Tokyo? Um, I would say performance wise, Tokyo was much better than Rio just because I was a better player by the time to came around. Um, but in terms of like, in terms of ambiance and like how it felt, Rio is definitely cooler just because of the moments, like I said, just now. And that's just because it wasn't during the time of COVID. So like we were able to have fans and spectators, whereas the Tokyo games spectators were not allowed to come. Yeah. Um, so it I was, was going to ask about was- like the COVID restrictions. Cause that was at the height of everything. Yes, yeah. yes it was. So like we had um, no fans were allowed you couldn't have friends or family or anybody come. Um, so like literally you'd be playing in stadiums that they had built expecting like crowds of people to come, but you'd be playing in empty stadiums. So um, yeah, that was just a different, a different type of atmosphere. Of course, it still had the same gravity in terms of like, I want to win this. This is still a pair of games. And in terms of how it felt, it still felt really cool being there, but in terms of the energy that you got from having fans and stuff in Rio, it wasn't quite the same. Yeah. I would imagine. Um, now you're, are you preparing to go to the 2024 Paralympians? Yeah. Um, I think that's going to be my last games. Really? Yeah. Like I'm 31 now. Um, I do feel like I haven't reached my peak yet in terms of my career and I still have like a year and a half, two years more to play. Um, but I know that I want to, start a family and I'm kind of ready for that life. So I'll play through to the end of the, the 2024 season. And then I think I'll hang up my racket and go on to other things. Yeah. Does it make you sad to think about that? A little bit. Um, I think if anything, it just makes me more motivated to really work hard during this time that I've kind of like allotted myself for the remainder of my career. Um, Just because I don't want to leave any like stones unturned or have any what ifs. Um, I definitely like if I had to retire tomorrow, like say some horrible injury happened to me, knock on wood, that doesn't happen. If Mm. I had to retire tomorrow, I think that I'd still be very proud of my career. But there are still things that I would love to see if I can do. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, Winning a Grand Slam title would be amazing or getting my ranking up to be in the top five, things like that. I would love to see myself do that. And so... Um, yeah, I think I still have ones that I want to turn over, um, before I, before I retire, but I don't think that I would really say that I'm sad. Yeah. I'm sure I will be at the time. I'm sure I will be because it's a life that I've grown to really love, but I'm also really excited to see like what another chapter might hold for me. So it's a mix of emotion. Yeah. So many great things and you can really focus on like, yeah, your family and your husband and I'm sure a more calm schedule ish. Yeah. I'm really excited. (laughs) I bet. Cause you're constantly going from here to there and probably living out of suitcases and in in hotels and, um, Yeah. What do you do? Do you listen to when you're about to compete? Is there anything that you do to kind of build yourself up? Any songs, any like quotes you read or anything like that, like a ritual? Um, 
I used to listen to music a lot when I first started playing. I don't really do that anymore. Um, I, I really just like prepare by going over like my, my plan for that match in my head. Cause obviously every match is different. You're playing a different opponent that day. Um, then you might've played the day before, or even if it's the same person you played a week before every match is different where they might come out playing really great and you might not be playing great that day. So, um, it takes a lot of focus to think about what your plan is. And I tend to write down little, what I call jobs for myself on <laughs> note cards. Um, so I'll give myself like two tennis jobs and one mental job in terms of like, okay, I'm going to remind myself to do my breathing or things like that on changeovers. Um, so that's kind of what I do before I play, but I, yeah, I don't really have any like crazy superstitions or things that I have to do in terms of like, Oh, I have to have three cups of coffee or like, a, you know, <laughs> I don't have socks. Like that. <laughs> no, I don't have anything like that. Um, Although I will say like if I, so a lot of times I'll wear a sweatband like on my left arm and I'll have to have the Adidas logo like facing a certain way or do you know what I mean? I have yeah. little things like that. I don't really have any like pre-match routine that I have to stick to. Otherwise my day is ruined. Right. Do your nerves, do you ever feel like your nerves are like out of control? Oh are yeah. You- I get super nervous. Um, I think kind of like what I alluded to before tennis matches, you never really know how they're going to go until you're playing them. Um, And it doesn't matter if you've beaten the girl across the net from you like nine out of 10 times, like it doesn't mean that she's not going to have your number on that day. So I, I get very nervous for things that I can't control. A lot of tennis players are control freaks, right? But I run a sport that has like no element of control in it. So I think that makes me very nervous. Just like not knowing how I'm going to play, how she's going to play. Is it going to be a good day or a bad day? I get very nervous for that. And then like, once I start the match, then that kind of goes away. The lead up to a match, I get nervous. Do you do anything to like, you mentioned like breathing to help you calm your nerves? Yeah, I think everything that I kind of just described is designed to give me an outlet for the nervous I might have. So it's really about focus my off for the match, focusing on things control. Do you feel like para Olympians are treated the same as Olympians? I feel like Paralympians are, how do I say it? I will say in our country, Paralympians definitely not treated the same. Other countries they are, which is really exciting to see. Um, I lived for a few years over in the United Kingdom in London, and they celebrate Paralympic sport in a way that our country has not done yet. Um, You'll see Paralympians on TV, you'll see them on billboard ads, you'll see them all over and in their country as well, disability is just seen as more normal. Mm. Um, And not not saying that like everyone has a disability, but it's just like on TV more. So people just see it and it's not so much, Oh my God, why is that girl in a wheelchair type thing? Oh my God, that person, the prosthetic leg. Um, and that's something that I hope that our country can, can get to within time. But yeah, in our country, nobody knows about the Paralympics. Um, Mm. no one really understands that people with disabilities can sports. People are surprised when I can open a door for myself. Um, do you know what I mean? Like there's a lot awareness that needs to be spread in our country um, about people with disabilities in general, much less professional athletes with disabilities. Right. And I think that that will come in time. That's slowly changing in terms of like, there's a lot of bigger sponsors that are sponsoring the games. 
sponsors that are sponsoring specific athletes like myself. So that's a great turning point in terms of visibility and things like that. Um, but yeah, I think in our country, it really boils down to not a prejudice, I would say, like an active choice to treat us differently. I think it's just that there's not an awareness that we exist or an understanding of what um, people with disabilities as professional athletes looks like. I think that yeah. me seeing the exposure that people in England have, for example, or even in Japan or a lot of other countries who know about Paralympic sport and how excited people get for it. Like yeah. as a fun fact, the Paralympics have outsold the Olympics for the last, um, I think, two or three games that have happened wow. because people love watching it. Yeah, a lot of people don't know that. But in the States, for whatever reason, we don't televise the games the same amount that we televise um, the Olympics. Jeez. There's there's not a lot of um, coverage about us. Whereas if there was, look at the fans that there are overseas. Like those people are people the same way that Americans are people, right? So there yeah. is a market for it. And I think there just needs to be more of an awareness, more of seeing us on TV, seeing us in commercials, seeing us on billboards, and then you'll have a market for it. But that hasn't happened yet. And I hope that it happens in, a, in my lifetime so I can see it. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it will. It is probably, I'm, you know, like so frustrating. Like I work my ass off and I'm not treated the same, Yeah, you know, and it's like, why is my sport not being televised, you know? And, um, but yeah, that's exactly. Yeah. I would imagine that's super, super frustrating. Um, is there anything, I have just a few more questions for you or I'll actually leave um, our listeners with this. What do you do to help like build your confidence when you're having like a rough day? Is there any quotes that you love or things that you do that help you change your state of mind? Um, that's a really good question. I think I've always just been the type of person that's more or less like a go-getter. Like yeah. my mom used to joke that I'm like a football player. Like if I want something, I go for it. Like I would go first down, second down, third down, fourth down. <laughs> and like just like repeatedly try for things that I want. So I think my stubborn nature makes me kind of like get up and go regardless of how I'm feeling on a certain day. Um, but I think one of the things that I started to do ever since I started working with a mental skills coach here for tennis is just practicing like gratitude. Mm. And I know that for most people, you can hear that. And then you're like, oh, well, that sounds silly. Like I'm not going to spend five minutes every morning saying like, oh, I'm grateful for X, Y, or Z, which is how I felt initially. But it really does help change your perspective on a day. Like you can wake up and be like, oh my gosh, I have so many meetings. I, I'm going to hate today. Today's going to suck or but if you can just like spend five minutes and just think about like two or three things that you're really grateful for that day or in your life, it can really surprisingly change your outlook on the day, like very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, and that can be something as simple as like, I'm really thankful that I have a roof over my head. I'm thankful mm -hmm. for the fact that like, I'm going to get to see this longtime friend for lunch today, or, you know, little things like that um, totally. can really kind of like elevate your shift. that I that motivate me. I think one of my favorite ones, I'm not sure it directly applies to like a feeling kind of down type of situation, but whenever I'm scared about something or nervous about something, I think about this quote that I read. I honestly don't remember who said it. I wish I did, <laughs> but it said like, um, don't be afraid to chase your butterflies 
And basically the meaning behind it is that like you get butterflies in your stomach or like kind of that like nervous, like your stomach's like flipping over itself when you're really nervous about something. But those nerves usually come before something exciting and big in your life. So say like um, you're getting married, for instance, or you're about to a speech or um, you know what I mean? Like you're about to get an award, something like that. Um, those butterflies only come before big things that can change your life. Like if you're never getting butterflies, you're, you're being stagnant, you're not changing things. You're not going after things in your life. So I like to try to chase butterflies, if that makes sense. Mm. And I feel like I've, I've done a good job of doing that with my life so far. I hope I continue to do it, but I think that's a quote that served me very well. Oh, I love that. No, that's, that's huge. And then I love, your um, comment about gratitude, because it is so simple that if we like sit down to think like, gosh, you know, I really have more than I need in this life. You know, like we are so, so lucky and um, being able to listen to a podcast or a warm cup of coffee or whatever it is, we woke up today, you know, there's so much to be grateful for. And you'll find it if you're intentional about, you know, looking for it, right. Because we can all get um, caught up in our own head. Uh, Is there any perks of being in this sport where you're like, you have a sponsor or you get free stuff? Is there any like thing you're like, okay, this is pretty cool. (laughs) Yeah, there are a lot of times I think you know, I, I'm very lucky that I have some amazing sponsors. Like I'm sponsored by Adidas. I'm sponsored by, um, Wilson and the Hartford and Deloitte and, and some other companies, which, um, not only like support my, my tennis goals financially, but also in terms of like, I get cool Adidas clothes and I get things like that, which can be really fun. Yeah. Um, so yeah, in terms of that kind of stuff, that's fun. That's in so terms fun of like getting recognized or things like that. Um, Clinique sent me some cool stuff the other day just to send it to me, which was really cool. Or, um, you know, those are things that I still kind of pinch myself. Like, I don't think of myself as a celebrity by any means. I'm definitely not. If anything, I'm like a big fish in a tiny pond. I don't think, (laughs) do you know what I mean? I'm not curing cancer. I'm not doing anything monumental. I'm chasing a yellow ball and hitting it around a court in different countries. So but you're I, inspiring so many people that feel like, you know, they've been dealt with this card, you know, and they're, you're like going after your dreams, you know, and you are a go-getter. There's so many people that have so many opportunities and they just don't take them because they, you know, either they don't feel like they can, or they don't have the support or whatever it may be, but that that's a huge inspiration. There's probably, you know, kids at home that are watching you or even adults and just like looking at you like, damn, you know, she's, she's going after huge things. Well, I I hope that's the case. I think when I first got injured, I met other people who were like who I am now. And that really inspired me and gave me something to kind of like, wow, okay, they play sports at this level, maybe I could do that. So if I could do that for even like, two or three people, that would be amazing for me. I think that at the end of the day, I would much rather be remembered for that than for being someone that won a grand slam, or was a good tennis player. I think that impacting someone or helping them the way that I was helped Mm. matters a lot more to me. So so that makes me happy to think that I might be, be doing that for someone else. Yeah, you totally are. You are. Where can listeners find you on Instagram or a website? Or if they're like, I need to, you know, see everything that you're doing, these amazing things. 
So you can follow me on, um, I'm on LinkedIn, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Instagram. Um, you can just search like Dana Matthewson, I should come up. Awesome. Um, I also have a website. If you go to danamatthewson.net, that's my website. And if you want to contact me, I think there's ways to contact me on my website, or you can send me a message on Instagram, whatever you want. Awesome. And I'll leave all that information um, in the show notes. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. No, thank you. It was nice to meet you. I had a great time with you. Yay. And you guys, if you love this episode, please just take a minute, 30 seconds to screenshot it, share it on your social media, tag Dana and uh, myself. Let us know maybe what you loved about it or where you're listening. And if you want to take it a step further, leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That would be extremely helpful. I hope this story was Dana's story is super inspiring and a reminder to you that you can go after the life you want. And remember, you got this. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you love this episode, make sure you are subscribed so you know when more episodes come available. My goal is to inspire others to become their vision. And one way to get the word out is with reviews. I would really appreciate it if you left an honest review on iTunes and it would mean so much to me. Thanks again and remember to go after the life you want. Bye guys. Bye.